welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray. I'm the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, I am so glad to be back with you uh, on another episode of this podcast. I'm so thankful for this opportunity in this kind of venue, this way I can uh, just share what's on my heart, share what uh, I have been learning and reading and thinking about and and just uh, studying throughout this past week. And so I hope that you will uh, be really uh, blessed by uh, another episode and another edition of Pastor Brad's Corner. So again, uh, I like to do these, uh, I, I try and do these once a week. Uh, wherein I will kind of reflect on some sermons and then also some articles that usually uh, go along with the sermons that I've been uh, been able to deliver and been able to um, preach and kind of just share some more thoughts, just expand on some of my uh, some of my thinking regarding uh, some of the sermons and different scripture passages that I've been chewing on. So uh, I really have been enjoying uh, just kind of creating these shows and coming up with different ways to make them exciting and whatnot, and uh, I've been trying to uh, make sure that I can uh, keep your attention a little bit. Um, But uh, I hope that you too have been uh, blessed by uh, Pastor Brad's Corners. And um, so uh, this past Sunday, uh, we'll just get right into it, just get right into the show. Um, This past Sunday, I was able to be back in the pulpit. Um, Sunday evening, I'll just jump there first because it was a little bit different. Uh, Sunday evening, I was actually preaching outside. So uh, this past week, Week, uh, not this past week, but the week uh, before that, actually, uh, we uh, had VBS, Vacation Bible School, at my church, and uh, it was a great blessing. There was uh, a lot of kids that were able to come out. We uh, averaged in the 70s of kids, and we were able to see four kids make decisions for Jesus, and uh, I am so thankful for the influence that all of the leaders in this event had on some of these uh, kids that had never heard of Jesus before. There was one testimony of a kid who said that they had never heard heard uh, about this gospel before. And so the the gospel teaching that was being presented was new and fresh to this, uh, this young person's ears. And that's exciting. Uh, it's uh, thrilling. It also increases the burden and increases sort of the seriousness with which you uh, approach ministries like that when there is one who is there who uh, has never heard of that before. Um, it's it's an incredible privilege, I think, to share uh, in uh, in that type of evangelism. Um, and so I was preaching outside. I, I, I preached um, just sort of the, the closing message for uh, Vacation Bible School. So it was a little bit different than normal, but it was a great blessing to be able to host that at my church. And uh, there was... It was just awesome to see the church really be the church in the sense that um, there was a lot of volunteers and many in my in in, in my church that was uh, excited to really step up and uh, see what the Lord can do um, through a ministry like this. Um, and I'm just really thankful that the Lord uh, allowed us to do that. It was a great blessing. Uh, Sunday morning, uh, however, I preached from Psalm 32, so I'm gearing up for a sermon series, and this is what I'm going to be really excited to talk through in the next several uh, weeks and months. Uh, I'm gearing up to talk or to preach through 
um, the book of Ecclesiastes in uh, the Sunday morning services at my church. And so uh, I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of studying, and a lot of um, thinking <laughs> and pondering about the book of Ecclesiastes and how I'm going to approach it for uh, a sermon series. But in the, in, I really, I really felt led to preach on Psalm 32 for a number of reasons. It's one that I have preached through before, but I went back to this chapter and I really just did a, you know, uh, square one sort of restudy of this, of this chapter, and especially as it applies to my own life. Um, I've always felt an, a, a deep appreciation for this psalm. Um, just to give you a background, Psalm 32 starts out with that wonderful verse, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And it Psalm 32 is is often linked in scholarly circles, so to speak, uh, with Psalm 51, which of course, both of them uh, then link, they are linked tangentially to David's, uh, King David's devastating season of life in which he um, forces himself onto Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, and then commits murder by uh, conspiring to murder his uh, Bathsheba's husband and to uh, cover up his sin, so to speak. And so you can see um, David's uh, emotions at play in Psalm 32 in a very real way, um, because when he is talking about uh, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and the sin is covered, or sin is not covered, or, uh, yeah, he, he's speaking from experience. He's speaking, of course, uh, in sort of a, a hindsight sort of way, looking back on his experience, uh, the travesty, the ruin that he has made of his own life through his own decisions, and yet he is hopeful and joyful. Why? Because he is singing to the God of forgiveness. And I've always felt a, um, a link to that psalm, only because um, I, I grew up, of course, you, you, you probably know this if you know me, but I, I grew up in a Christian home, a very devout Christian home, a devout, devout Baptist home. Uh, my dad is a pastor. He still is a pastor of a Baptist church. My grandfather was a pastor when he was alive. Uh, I am a third generation pastor um, in my family, and I'm really... I'm really thankful for that, um, but there is also a sense in which I grew up sort of so accustomed with everything that it, unfortunately, uh, because of my own heart, it didn't really make an impact on me. And I remember feeling the Spirit's conviction um, on my life as I was running uh, from the Spirit, so to speak, the Spirit that I knew, because uh, I was so familiar with uh, the Word, with the Scriptures, I and everything like that. And I remember um, really being jolted <laughs> by a significant experience in my life. Um, there was a time when I was involved in a very terrible car accident, and I remember thinking, um, how in the world did I get here? And it was through that experience, though, that my eyes were really a, uh, sort of opened to my own condition, to my own sinful pattern and lifestyle and the pit of, of, of sin and rebellion that I had sort of dug for myself. And that's really when the Lord got a hold of my life. 
it was through this inter- terrible season of life in which I, w- this unexpected tragedy occurred. And I remember um, being immediately brought to this chapter, uh, Psalm 32, because David talks about how he it was feeling this weight, this burden of, of trying to live with unconfessed sin. And he describes it as if it's sucking his life out. He says, he talks about in Psalm 32 how uh, his life is as if he is uh, in the heat of summer and all of his moisture is being zapped out of his body. And he's talking literally about the fact that this spiritual um, rebellion that he has allowed to occur in his life is actually affecting him in a very physical way. He's getting physically exhausted and emotionally tormented by the fact that he's trying to live with guilt, by trying to, as he says there, keep silent about his sin. And um, I can relate to that. Um, I can relate to the fact that when you are trying to live a certain way, in a way in which God did not design, your body becomes physically affected by a spiritual um, by a, a spiritual thing you're trying to keep hidden, that you're trying to keep locked away, that make sure no one sees. And David describes this in great detail in Psalm 32, but then he also goes on to expound the fact that through that conviction, through that heavy hand, and in fact in verse 4 of Psalm 32, I believe it is, he talks about how this heaviness, he locates it in God's own hands. And so he knows that this heaviness is coming from the Spirit. He knows that it's coming from his Lord. And it's through that conviction that he's brought to a point where he is uh, it confesses. And he talks about how he no longer wants to keep silent. In verse 5, he talks about from a place of silence, he is brought to a place of confession where he is literally opening his heart and his mouth to confess his sin. And that's when he experiences forgiveness. And he talks about it in such great detail, um, the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness of God that leads us from that misery, that miserable place of unconfessed sin, it brings us to this abundance of mercies, as he says there in verse 10, that surrounds us, that it envelops us, it just totally encompasses him because of conviction, because of confession, because he no longer was silent about his sin. Uh, and that's that's what I, I, I leaned into in my sermon. And And it's a sermon that is personal in the sense that I can go back to and just, I will read my notes on the sermon and I am still affected by them. Not because I think I write in such a, uh, you know, uh, eloquent way, but because I remember and I, I can put myself in these moments and I can really feel uh, and I can really know the fact that it is God who has brought me from that place where I was to the place where I am. He has brought me from that place of trying to hide uh, my life, trying to repress and suppress the shame and the guilt and the, and the angst and, and the fear that I feel. And through the, yes, the gift of conviction, I am brought into the joy of confession. Uh, see, this is the wonderful thing um, that we have, that we are assured of in God's uh, forgiveness. The good news of God's forgiveness is the fact that 
It is such a certainty that you don't have to wonder or you don't have to be um, curious about the fact that whether or not God will forgive you. It's already a surety. It's already something that he has already bought and wrought out in his own uh, body. Because he has been broken for you, for us, the forgiveness of God is a certainty. It's something that you can bank on. It's something that you can rely on. You can sink your teeth into. You can, you can stake your whole life on this. And the wonderful thing is the fact that there is uh, the main thrust that I wanted to get in my sermon is it's, it's probably been said a thousand different ways by a thousand different preachers, but you can never outsend the coverage of Jesus's forgiveness. You know, for me, that's sometimes a hard uh, reality to come to grips with. There's certainly that God can't forgive me. I, I've done something terrible. I've done something so uh, horrible and and so atrocious that, of course, there, this has got to be the sin that doesn't have forgiveness. And uh, the wonderful, incredible, astounding news of the gospel is the fact that there is no sin that is outside of the coverage of Jesus' forgiveness. It is that powerful, it is that strong, it is that incredibly reaching. It reaches into our sin, into our pits of filth and mire and muck, and it brings us out of them. I think about the fact that David, King David, the murdering adulterer David, is forgiven. And not only that, he is referred to as the man after God's own heart, even after this disaster that he has brought into his life, a disaster that stays with him, that uh, sticks with him throughout his whole life. And yet, he is forgiven. And at the end of Psalm 32, he, he talks about how he can rejoice as one who is righteous and upright in heart. Why? Not because he has done anything uh, to make himself righteous. It's because he was given the promise that his son one day, a son from his line, would be reckoned a sinner for all of the world so that sinners could be reckoned as righteous. This is the gift of conviction. We're brought to this place where we understand that we we are not as powerful, we are not as controlled, we are not as sovereign as we think we are. In fact, we are much, much more ruinous. We are, we are wrecks. We are rebels. We, uh, we, we don't know our left hand from our right. Our heart is dece- deceptively and desperately wicked. Who can know it, as it says, uh, as the prophet Jeremiah says? Uh, that was the the main point of my sermon, and I loved it. I, I'll put a link into the, the notes just because I love uh, what God uh, taught me, even through uh, my own studying for that sermon. It was uh, such a blessing to uh, to be refreshed and renewed by uh, the Lord's forgiveness. Um, uh, really quick, uh, before we move move on to the next sort of story that I want to get to. Um, um, 
just want to take a quick break, and I want to talk to you uh, about uh, coffee. Uh, do you like coffee? I love coffee. In fact, I'm drinking some coffee right now, and uh, of course, it is coffee from my friends and my partners, Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in the heart of central Pennsylvania, and they're committed to providing the highest quality coffee on the planet. Uh, they source fresh uh, coffee beans, and they do uh, through the most eco-friendly uh, processes, and they uh, roast all of their beans per order in-house and immediately package them to, as they say, uh, give you their coffee at peak drinkability. Uh, when I first moved to uh, Central PA uh, to be the pastor here, one of the first things I was really looking forward to finding is a place to uh, have coffee, to find my coffee, and um, I was very quickly introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee, and I'm so happy that that I was uh, because uh, I have not really drank anything ever since. <laughs> uh, I love fresh roasted coffee, uh, so make sure uh, you check out uh, fresh roasted coffee. Um, it's at freshroasted.com, um, freshroastedcoffee.com, excuse me. You go there, and if you can, you can get 10% off your first order by using my coupon code GRACE10, G-R-A-C-E-10, at checkout. You can get 10% off your first order. Um, and what, so make sure you make your, whatever, however you get your beans, however you get your coffee, make sure you make them fresh roasted. Uh, make sure you check out uh, my discount code and make sure you uh, are drinking coffee. Uh, you'll be glad that you did. Um, okay, uh, now uh, I kind of want to go back and talk about something a little bit different. Um, and I promise these things are a little bit connected. <laughs> uh, it may not feel that way at first, but I came across this news clipping. It's from Discern, uh, Discern Daily. He is the guy, uh, by the way, that um, used to own... Uh, the Babylon Bee. So if you're big fans of the Babylon Bee and all their satirical news stories and whatever, uh, he actually has a legitimate news uh, website called Discern. Uh, and so um, as I think it's discern.com or discernnews.com. Uh, I'll put the link in. It's discern.com. The link is will be in the notes for this show. Uh, but anyways, there was a report that came out on Discern and it, it, the headline is this. And the headline sort of reveals <laughs> pretty much everything that you need to know. It says this, the 20 2020 State of the Bible report reveals only 9% of Americans read the Bible daily. 9%. 9% of Americans read the Bible daily, <laughs> which I think is just an incredible number. An incredibly revealing number. You want to know why uh, the church has the problems that it has uh, in, uh, in in has nowadays is because <laughs> is because we aren't reading our Bibles. We aren't in the Word. We are thinking. We are believing that we can get by with without this Bible. We can get we can get by without without the uh, the the principles and the commands and the and the wisdom that it imbues those who read it. Our failures as a church, not not as Stonington Baptist Church, but as a church universal, um, I believe are are intimately tied to our resistance to the idea that we aren't independent, 
uh, we, we like to think that we are. We like to think that we can do this thing called Christianity, that we can do life, so to speak, apart from any influence of the Holy Spirit, apart from any uh, sort of incisive influence for, of the Word. We, uh, I think we would, we would much rather have um, a setup like The Matrix. So remember in The Matrix where uh, Keanu Reeves, Neo, he's getting introduced to this world, this world, you know, quote, without limits. And he's doing this train. Remember the, the, the training sort of montage where he's fighting Morpheus and then all of a sudden they plug this thing in. They, they have his brain download all of these different fighting styles and all of a sudden in a blink, And as fast as you can download an MP3, he is now a Kung Fu master. I think in a lot of ways we want that uh, in terms of sanctification. We want our sanctification to be this downloadable uh, thing that we can just get on our hard drive, our spiritual hard drive. And I'm sorry for all these really dumb metaphors, but we want sanctification downloadable because it makes it more, uh, it makes it easier it makes it uh, with uh, it makes it uh, less uh, uh, strenuous the effort involved in becoming a sanctified saint of god is not really that appealing to sort of our hypermobile efficiency crazed busy lives uh, we're just too busy nowadays the word of god the bible a printed bible really represents almost an antiquated form of the christian life if you think about it if you think about it in modern terms because it represents a word the word of god which doesn't always necessarily present to us where we should be and how we should live and what we are to think and what we should do instead it invites a search. It invites a digging. It invites work. It invites effort. There's no sprinting into spiritual discernment. By grace, we are justified. By grace, we are sanctified. And yet the sanctification that comes by grace through the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his holiness for us invites a deeper and deeper and deeper meditation and musing and life and pursuit of God. As it says in Psalm 63, 8, we pursued, we follow hard after God. Why? Because of what he has done. And because of what we are told that he has done. Um, You see, the Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And unfortunately, no one has time for that nowadays. No one really is interested in any sort of thing that uh, intrudes upon their busyness, upon their schedules. Which brings me to, I think, one of the most important essays published in the last few years. Uh, You may have been uh, familiar with this essay. It comes from uh, a a writer named Tim Kreider. Now, Tim Kreider is not a believer. Um, I think he is a professed atheist in a lot of ways. Um, I don't really know, so don't take that for for verbatim. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, Tim Kreider wrote an essay all the way back in 2012. So I know this is older. I'll link it, though, because it is so powerful and incisive and cutting, and it speaks right to the heart of what I'm trying to get to, which is the fact that our busyness, our schedules of life have become sort of a pseudo-religion. It's become sort of a religious thing to be busy. 
And he writes about this in an essay uh, that was very popular and still is, and one that I think is very worth your time, called The Busy Trap. Uh, he wrote it for the New York Times. And he is, uh, in this article, he is perfectly and yet tragically writing to this, yes, this modern religion of busyness and productivity. Uh, it cuts to the core. How many, how many times have you been in a conversation with a person? You say, hey, how are you doing? And the person says, busy, so busy, just crazy busy. We use those, those little uh, phrases so often in our conversation. And I love what Kreider says. He says, he, he, he quotes those sort of retorts and he says, quote, it is pretty obviously a boast described as a complaint. And the stock response is a kind of congratulation. That's a good problem to have, or better than the opposite. We are addicted to busyness, Kreider continues, and dread that we might have to face its absence. <laughs> I, I think that is so insightful to me. We spout off and we complain that we're busy that we are just being pushed to the limits of our schedules of our of our uh, of our fatigue and we are becoming so exhausted through the things that we are having to do and yet that's almost a merit badge it's almost a badge of honor that we wear on our chest and say look at how busy i am he continues quote it's not as if any of us wants to live like this any more than one person wants to be part of a traffic jam or stadium trampling or the hierarchy of cruelty in high school it's something we collectively force one another to do busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance a hedge against emptiness obviously your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy completely booked in demand every hour of the day <laughs> He continues, I can't help but wonder whether all this historic exhaustion isn't a way of covering up the fact that most of us, most of what we do doesn't matter. Life is too short to be busy. I invite you to read his whole essay because it reminds me of the things that I busy myself about with, <laughs> uh, the things that I add to my schedule the things that I put on my calendar. And I, I say, oh, I'm so busy. I'm busier than ever. This week is just not a good week. And I'm forcing myself to do certain things that strangles my relationships with other people, that strangles my relationships with God. Am I too busy to read and investigate and dig into his word and not be a part of the nine or and not be a part of the 91% that doesn't read the scriptures <laughs> you know i'm i'm convicted by these words all the time i go back to this essay a lot because Kreider writes and pinpoints the human heart that that has become sort of the modus operandi of the 21st century, which is the fact that our busyness proves our worth. That if we are, the busier we are, the more important we are. And in fact, what Kreider spoke about back in 2012 was echoed a lot more recently in an article in The, in the Atlantic by Arthur Brooks. 
His article was entitled, Success Addicts, Choose Being Special Over Being Happy. And he, again, examines this this disposition that we have in the modern age to sort of lionize, to champion success over any other pursuit. And we often put the idea of being successful over and above any other aspiration or relationship. He writes this, Brooks, quote, Though it isn't a conventional medical addiction for many people, success has addictive properties. To a certain extent, I mean that literally. Praise stimulates the neurotransmitter dopamine, which is implicated in all addictive behaviors. This is basically how social media keeps people hooked. Users get a dopamine hit from the likes generated by a post, keeping them coming back again and again, hour after miserable hour. But success also resembles addiction in its effect on human relationships. People sacrifice their links with others for their true love, success. They travel for business on anniversaries. They miss little league games and recitals while working long hours. Some forgo marriage for their careers, earning the appellation of being married to their work, even though a good relationship is more satisfying than any job. Success is brutal work and requires sacrifices. The goal can't be satisfied. Most people never feel successful enough. The high only lasts a day or two, and then it's on to the next goal. Psychologists call this the hedonic treadmill, in which satisfaction wears off almost immediately, and we must run on to the next reward to avoid the feeling of falling behind. This is why so many studies show that successful people are almost invariably jealous of people who are more successful. They should get off the treadmill. But quitting isn't easy for addicts. American culture valorizes overwork, which makes it easy to slip into a mindset that can breed success addiction. Success in and of itself is not a bad thing any more than wine is a bad thing. Both can bring fun and sweetness to life, but both become tyrannical when they are a substitute for, instead of a complement to, the relationships and love that should be at the center of our lives. That's Brooks. And... You know, though I don't really agree or share his same views on wine, his point is well taken, which is this. Success makes a terrible God. Success will ruin relationships. It will ruin and fracture the most important things in your life. It is a terrible God who never fulfills, who never satisfies, who never brings peace. He only brings stress and anguish and angst and more and more struggle. To me, I am reminded of the fact that for all of my busyness, that is not what secures my identity. I'm reminded of the fact that, yes, I can be as busy as I want to be, but that's not where my worth lies. My worth lies in the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the one who procured, who bought, who paid for my worth and my identity. He has settled everything. He has accomplished everything. All of the standards of righteousness and excellence have been exceeded on my behalf. All of the debts have been collected and paid for on my behalf. Nothing remains for me or for you to accomplish. Yes, you can strive to be successful in your careers, in your occupation, to be the best 
whatever worker you can be. But don't confuse success and career for your worth, for your significance. Your significance lies in the blood that streamed from a cross 2,000 years ago. Your worth lies in the mud and blood-soaked dirt of Golgotha. It's the gospel. The gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. That's what declares that all of your worth is tied up in Jesus Christ and you are freed to enjoy, yes, the forgiveness, the righteousness, the benefits of all of those achievements on your behalf. You are freed to enjoy them by faith. Our addictions to success are made to come at rest Our busyness is made to be still by this grace that reminds us that our identity is not wrapped up in our busyness. It's wrapped up in this body of Jesus that was wrapped in grave clothes. It's there. And Jesus' passion and death, where all of our busyness comes to rest, That's what allows us to get off the treadmill. (laughs) It's what allows us to stop putting a weight of assurance on trying to be busy. It allows us to be still. Allows us to have time. Allows us to have the space and the bandwidth to let the word do a work on us. Not to try and uh, fall over ourselves and be so busy that we have no time for anything else. This is the grace of God that stills our busyness. It's the grace of God, the gospel, which declares that your identity has already been won by another's work, not yours. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Pastor Brad's Corner and the Ministry Minded Podcast. I hope you've been blessed by it and encouraged by it. If you have some more thoughts, be sure to put them in the comments or just you can email me as well. Uh, I invite you to subscribe to the Ministry Minded Podcast on Apple or on Spotify or on Google or on Anchor. Uh, You can find those links in the notes below. Uh, Thank you so much for your encouragement and support. Make sure to check out Fresh Roasted and thank you always for listening and commenting and subscribing. I'll see you next on the next episode. Blessings.